0: I can understand what Brother Tim was talking about this morning. I remember the children were growing up. We'd go to the store to get them some athletic shoes. We had to decide what brand did we get low tops, mid cuts, high tops, um, what color, all, all that. You know, you, you walk down the, in the grocery store to get a box of cereal, cereal from one end of the aisle to the other on both sides. You know, and you stand there just uh, <laughs> in days of, what do I pick? What do I choose here? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's the way it is in the Lord's church. He left something very simple for us where we can do, uh, whether we're worshiping a building, whether it being under a brush arbor in somebody's house, a nursing home, everything we do right here can be done in all those circumstances because we're not depending upon anything other than God himself. Uh, I'd like to look at the last verse of the Bible. We oftentimes quote the first verse, Genesis 1-1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That's a great place to start, and that's pretty simple, isn't it? That's a simple statement. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Well, the last statement of the Bible is a pretty simple statement. The Apostle John, he says, on the Isle of Patmos, writing by divine inspiration, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's how he closes out the book of Revelation, which closes out the Bible. If you've been reading the Bible all year and you're coming down the home stretch, the very last thing that goes into your mind is what the Apostle John desired to be upon the Lord's people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen means so be it. That's right. That's exactly what it is. it's a sanction, so to speak. Now, if you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, you find this same sentiment expressed over and over. The Apostle Paul, I believe, was the human writer of 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. We find he wrote nine letters to seven churches. He wrote three letters to preachers, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. He wrote a book to an individual by the name of Philemon, and then the 14th book, I believe, is the book of Hebrews. And here Paul doesn't identify himself as a human writer, but I think for several reasons. But it is a general consensus has been for centuries that Paul was the human writer. Various reasons for that we won't go into this morning. But we find in the beginning of each of these epistles, in the opening verses, Paul makes a statement. He says, Grace be unto you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, grace unto you, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father. Now, if you are writing a letter, I guess maybe the last thing you do is put in the envelope, but you address the envelope, that's gonna be who it's going to. And then on the left hand corner up here, you write or perhaps stamp your name and address, which is who the letter is from. So when I go to the mailbox and I get a card or letter or something, and I look at it, I look to see who it's to, and you might say, well, it's in your mailbox? Yes, it is, but sometimes I get other people's mail. <laughs> I do. So I make sure it's to me. And then I usually glance up to the left-hand corner to see who it's from. Because generally speaking, as people write a letter, they don't start off by saying... Uh, Dear Brother Lawrence, this is Brother Joe. Uh, Usually, your Brother Lawrence or whatever. And then they'll put their name at the very end. But the Apostle Paul, in writing his letters, put his name at the very beginning, at the first. But he says, Grace to you, that tells us who to. Then he says, And from God our Father. Not just God the Father, or God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but God our Father. Uh, And i like to emphasize from time to time that while we believe that God is the creator of the entire universe, and he's our creator, the Lord's people can look at him more than just the creator. They can look at him as their father. That's why the Lord taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray, you pray in this manner, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now just think about it. You have a Father in heaven who loves you with a perfect love. Loves you with an unconditional love. Loves you and provides for you and cares for you. He tells his disciples that the very hairs of your head are numbered. And a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without your father's, without your father noticing it or your father's knowledge of it. We can go on in this vein here, but just to give you a little glimpse of how wonderful it is to know that your God is your heavenly father. So the apostle here says, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know grace and peace. Two great twin towers, aren't they? Two wonderful words, two beautiful words, two lovely words. When you read the word grace and the word peace in the word of God. Because apart from God there is no grace. Apart from God there is no real peace. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. When two nations are at war, and there's a ceasefire. That's not real peace. It's just a ceasefire. All the anguish, all the problems, all the trouble, all the afflictions, and everything that they've experienced and they suffer inwardly uh, is still there. Yes, the outward battle is, over, is is ceased for a temporary period of time, but again, that's not that's not real peace. So he says, "Grace to you and peace." And the source is God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter follows suit like Paul. In the beginning of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1 2, he says, And may grace and peace be multiplied unto you. He says the same thing in 2 Peter 1 and 2. That the grace of God and peace be multiplied. These people they're writing to had experienced grace in different ways. There's different applications of grace. And I want you to think about that with me this morning. It's different applications of God's grace. And the Apostle John closes out the Bible like this the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And you'll find this expression grace unto you and peace. In every single epistle of Paul, with the exception of the book of Hebrews, he'll find it in the opening verses of every letter. You will also find in the closing chapter, in the closing verses of every letter, Paul and Peter make reference to God's grace. Going back to Peter. Again, in 1 Peter 1-2, he says, May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied. To you, And then in the fifth chapter, the last chapter, he says in verse 10, And the God of all grace. That tells me there's more than one aspect of God's grace. The God of all grace, who hath called you unto his eternal glory. That's what God has called you into. That's a high calling, isn't it? Look at Hebrews 3.1, for example. Consider, my brethren, he says... Uh, ...partakers of the heavenly calling. We're talking about a high calling. A calling that comes from heaven here. The God of all grace... ...who called you unto his eternal glory... ...it says strengthen you... ...settle you, establish you... ...and perfect you in your sufferings. Two verses later in verse 12... ...he says hearing is the true grace of God. If there's a true grace... ...there must be a false grace. That is a false application of God's grace... A false teaching of God's grace. If there is a true grace, certainly the Apostle Peter knew what true grace was all about, as well as the Apostle Paul. Now, we find where Paul is writing these letters to churches. Now, there's seven churches that existed in that particular day that Paul wrote these letters to. So, why did he write these letters to these churches? To instruct them, to edify them to teach them about the Lord's church. Everything about the New Testament church in its simplicity is covered in these nine letters to the churches and the three letters to the preachers. We don't need anything else apart from that. It's either biblical or it's not biblical. It's either taught in the Word of God or it's not taught in the Word of God. We find it by example in God's Word and we don't find example in God's Word. And every truth that you find contained in God's word, you should be able to find a biblical example of it, and you should be able to find an example of it in your own life right here. If you can't find an example of it, then you perhaps don't have the right interpretation of it. Whether you can't find an example in your life, out here in general, or you can't find an example of it in the word of God. God gives us the principle, he gives us the teaching, he gives us the example of it. So Paul is writing to a church. What is a church? A church is made up of baptized believers. It's a spiritual band of baptized believers. And the church operates and functions, the Lord's church does, on the knowledge of God's sovereign grace. He says, grace be unto you. Now those he's writing to already had experiences with God's grace, just like you do have here this morning. It's my desire too to say to you, grace be to you, and peace be multiplied here this morning. So what am I saying here? Because you, the ones I'm speaking to and preaching to, and the ones Paul preached to and was writing to, they make up the entire family of the Lord, a part of the entire family of the Lord Jesus Christ, who experienced grace before time ever began. 2 Timothy 1.9. Let's take a look at it just for a moment. Paul writes to Timothy, says, "...who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace." which was given us in Christ Jesus, when? before the world began. Before the world began, somebody received grace in Christ Jesus as God's elect family, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. It's, this calling is not only a high calling, it's a holy calling. It comes from a holy God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. This call is not in harmony with our works but it's according to, it is in harmony with the purpose and grace that we received in Christ before the world began. Ephesians 1.6 Praise to the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You've been made accepted in Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of God's grace. When did God make you accepted in Christ? It's before time ever began. Before the foundation of the world, as verse 4 says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy without blame before him in love. Then he comes to verse 6, praise to the glory, what? Of his grace. The entire family of God has been recipients of this grace. I call this covenant grace. The grace God gave to his children out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people before time ever began when he placed them in Jesus Christ in a covenant relationship. Then we have saving grace. What did the angel say to Joseph? The angel said to Joseph, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife, for thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Here's a proclamation, a declaration of what Jesus came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. When we go back to 2 Timothy one nine, What does Paul say? He says, who hath saved us. One statement's on this side of the cross. The second statement's on this side of the cross. The angel tells Joseph, gives the message before Christ ever dies on Calvary. He shall save his people from their sins. Paul says he did it. That's simple, isn't it? That's simple. Who have saved us. It's an E.D. at the end of it. It's always important to notice these words like saved and justified and reconciled when it has an ED because that shows it's a perfect action that's been completed. Who have saved us. Yes, Paul can write now that what the angel said came to fruition. What the angel said took place when Jesus Christ made an offering sacrifice on Calvary. The Father accepted the offering, accepted the sacrifice. And the Lord's people were saved, legally speaking, from their sins. From that point of view, all the family of God was saved at exactly the same time, in the same manner, in the same way on Calvary. Somebody says, when was you saved? I saved the same time you saved. That's my answer. Well, how do you know that? I might have been saved 10 years ago. You might have been saved 20 years ago. No, we all saved 2,000 years ago, legally speaking, on Calvary. All right? For by grace are is saved through faith, that not of yourselves, Ephesians 2. eight. It's the gift of God, not of works. I any man should boast. Somebody said, well, in that text, it says, for you're saved by grace through faith, not of your works. He's talking about the grace of the faith. He's talking about both. Man, my nature does not have faith. He's void of faith. So faith is a gift of God, is it not? Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. We find where faith is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 and 25. You cannot produce faith if you don't have the Spirit. The Spirit is what produces the faith. God gives you the faith. It's the gift of God. From grace, or you say through faith, that not of yourselves. The grace and the faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, once again, not of works. It's not my works. From grace you say through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then we have what we call the vital aspects of salvation. And that's when you've been born of the Spirit of God. Now, that does differ from child of God to child of God, doesn't it? God doesn't born all of his children at the exact same time, at the exact same age. We have in the Scriptures three examples, and they're there for a reason, of somebody being born of the Spirit before they're ever born in nat- in nat- naturally speaking. That's John the Baptist. He's in his mother's womb, which is Mary. She goes to the hill country. To visit her cousin Martha, who's carrying in, in her womb John the Baptist. Both of these are miraculous conceptions. We find where Elizabeth was barren, not able to have children, but God blessed her and Zacharias to have this child contrary to nature. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of a virgin that never knew a man. She was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Ghost. And these two people who are cousins meet with each other to talk about things. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to kind of eavesdrop on that conversation, wouldn't you? I, sh- I certainly would. And we find when Mary approaches Martha, excuse me, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth says to Mary, she says, at your salutation, the babe leapt for joy in my, in my womb. At your salutation, at, at, at the sound of your voice, the child in my womb leapt for joy. That shows me here that God had already born John the spirit of the spirit, uh, John the Baptist of the Spirit of God before ever saw the light of day. And then we got Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, a fire breathing dragon, if there ever was one the greatest persecutor of the church, perhaps the church has ever experienced, especially in that day, of course, as he gave consent to the death of Stephen, as he was on the road to Damascus with letters of authority to apprehend arrest God's people, just like you this morning, in place of worship, just like you are this morning. They would come in those doors and apprehend you and drag you back to the city of Jerusalem and place you into prison. But on the road... The Lord spoke to us, Saul, Saul, while persecutest thou me? And the Lord spoke life into the heart of this man. Oh, he continued his trip to Damascus, all right? He didn't arrest anybody. He had to avoid being arrested. <laughs> he went there to persecute. He wound up going there to feed the family of God. God changed his life around. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, this was a life-changing moment in my life? This was a life-changing moment. Well, I'm telling you, Saul of Tarsus had a life-changing moment in his life on the road to Damascus. You know, the word Saul means dedicated one. And I'm telling you, he was as dedicated as a person could possibly be to persecuting God's children. But later his name is changed to Paul, which means little. You think Saul of Tarsus thought himself to be little when he was Saul of Tarsus, well, that, before that Damascus Road experience? You, you think he thought himself to be little? Oh, i can assure you, he did not. I can assure you that Saul of Tarsus thought himself to be big, thought himself to be something in this world here. But after God got through with him, he just whittled him down like the chainsaw of the base of a great oak tree. (laughs) And he comes tumbling down. And now his name is Paul, which means little one. Now he sees himself as we all need to see ourselves as just little ones. You know, apart from God's grace and mercy. And then we got the thief on the cross. When the thief was on the cross, he, in the beginning, railed on the Lord Jesus Christ just like the other thief did. They were, they were in consent, one with another, and they railed on Jesus. But then we find, according to the Gospel of Luke, where the Lord Jesus Christ obviously spoke into the heart of one of those thieves and done something for him. And now we find that thief rebuking the other thief, telling him, we get what we deserve. This man has done nothing amiss. Then he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and says... When thou comest thy kingdom, remember me. And the Lord said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I believe that thief was born of the Spirit of God right there on that cross at the 11th hour. So we got somebody before they ever see the light of day. We got somebody who's a full-grown adult persecuting the Lord's church, and now we got the thief on the cross. Just before he draws his last breath, God boards him of the Spirit. What a marvelous display the omnipotent grace of God. Oh, I love it. And so sometime along the journey of life between conception and death, every child of grace will experience what I'm talking about right now. They'll experience a being born of the Spirit of God, quickened in divine life by the sovereign, omnipotent power of God. And God does it at his own time. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. These people he's writing to have already experienced being born of the Spirit of God. You know, Titus 3 5, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's the vital aspects of your salvation. Just like humanly speaking in the body, uh, you've got organs that's called vital organs. You can't live without the liver, the heart, you know, both your kidneys, except these are vital organs. When God mourns you the Spirit of God, vitally speaking, you've been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every child of grace will experience what I've been talking about so far. He says, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew and understood that in order for the Lord's church that he set up and established in his own personal life, upon his own self, upon his own work, the church is built upon the person of Christ and the work of Christ... Christ being the Son of God who came into this world, lived a perfect, holy, righteous, sinless life. It's built upon that. It's built upon what He accomplished on Calvary. It's built upon the fact that He saved His people from their sins. The truth of this, my friends, is proclaimed from the mouths of God's servants have been for 2,000 years that salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end and from first to last. But in order for the Lord's church to operate and function as it should according to the head which is the Lord Jesus Christ, grace is necessary. In the Lord's church, we have the singing of the hymns of Zion, don't we? That's something we all can participate in, from the youngest to the oldest, brothers and sisters. We we all can participate and all should joyfully participate in this. It's not a suggestion. It's not just a a warm-up session for the preaching. (laughs) I have to admit, I, I think it does that for us. It helps us come out, you might say, from the world and come in and settle down and pick up that hymn book and begin to sing uh, uh, from your heart to the Lord. And and the more you do this, the more you make the transition from the world into into the kingdom of God. So listen to Colossians 3, 15 and 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. For our song service to be accepted on the sight of God, we cannot do that apart from God's grace. Teaching and admonishing one another. It's a teaching session. It's an admonishing session. Teaching and admonishing one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. You know in Ephesians 5.19, he says, "Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is very simple. We can do that congregation. We believe in congregational a cappella singing. We believe we have the command to sing in the Word of God, and we believe we have the examples of that in the Word of God. Uh, we don't believe in, in setting apart somebody with a special talent uh, in the worship of God to be admired or applauded. The Lord wants every single one of us from, uh, from the worst voice to the best voice. To join together. And it's always been pretty interesting to me that when everybody joins together, and we know there's a variation, my friends, in the equality of our voices. Everybody can't sing like me, thank God. <laughs> but somehow, though, when I sing along with y'all, uh, my, my terrible voice, gets, it gets hid. <laughs> We've got to have grace to do that when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. How did Paul describe his experience? And by the way, Paul knew a lot about grace. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you see Paul saying, well, yeah, I got born in Damascus Road, but that's when I got right with God. I took the first step. He took the next step. No, Paul, you didn't take any step. If God depended upon you to get right with him, you'd still be out there a fire-breathing dragon as Saul of Tarsus, and you would not be Paul. By the grace of God I am what I am. That's all I can say this morning to you. By the grace of God I am what I am. That's that's all I can offer. But I believe by the grace of God I am a child of God. I believe by the grace of God I am an heir of God. I believe by the grace of God I am a joint heir of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe by the grace of God I am a child of the king. (laughs) By the grace of God I am what I am. So he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, wherefore I was made a minister. Notice, I was made a minister by the gift of the grace of God, which was given to me effectually by the working of his power. Paul says, that's how, I was, that's how I'm a minister. I was made a minister by the gift of the grace of God. Every, every God-given preacher, my friends, every preacher that stands before you in this place, including myself, can only stand here and preach the gospel because God in His sovereign pleasure gave me and them the gift to be able to do so. It's not something just anybody and everybody can do. You have to have a a call. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that he was called to be an apostle. But not only is grace required, you see, this is where old Baptists get their ministers. Old Baptists don't go to the schools of men's learning to get their preachers. Old oh, Baptists don't go uh, to the school of higher institutions or, or institutions of higher learning. They don't go to Bible schools. They don't go to seminaries to get the ministers and the pastors for the churches. Where do they go? They go to God for them. It takes God to call a man to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes God to give him the understanding of his word that he preaches the truth from God's word, which is the word of truth. Never taken a Bible class in my life. They were took a Bible course, Bible class, and uh, thank the Lord for that. <laughs> I guess <laughs> because you talk about complicating things and getting things confusing, and I know for a fact that when graduation day comes, that they often walk down the steps in disagreement on things like the virgin birth. They don't. All of them don't even believe in the virgin birth. All of them don't even believe in the resurrection. They're in disagreement about a lot of things. But I tell you, the old Baptist ministry across the land and across this entire world all agree on the fundamentals of salvation by the grace of God. In the next verse, he says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints. You see the humility in this man now? Does this sound like Saul of Tarsus? Oh, no, it doesn't, but it sounds like Paul unto me whom less least of all the saints is this grace given that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. He gives credit to God for his calling. He gives credit to God for his blessing. Him to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why from time to time I try to remind you and encourage you to pray for me and to pray for the ministry because every experience is a new experience. I don't care how long a man's been preaching. I'm in my 50th year. Coming down the home stretch of 50 years in the ministry. July the 3rd this coming year. And it takes the same grace for me to preach this morning. It did when I started 50 years ago. After I've been preaching 10 years, 20, 30, 40, now 50 years. I stand in need of God's help and God's grace as much today as I did the first time I ever made an attempt to preach the gospel. Unto me who blessed the least of all the saints is this grace given. And then we come over here to 2 Corinthians 9. And we look in verses um, 7 and 8. And Paul says that every one of you so purpose in your heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you when it comes to sacrificial giving. And that's the kind of giving the Bible teaches. is sacrificial giving. Not just giving, but sacrificial giving. And the, and the grace of God is able to bring all, all things in your direction. That ye always having a sufficiency of all things might abound to every good work. See, it takes God's grace. The church can't operate apart from the grace of God. So we're talking about grace for living, aren't we? We're talking about grace for worship. I went to a meeting one time a few years ago. was there on Friday night. And I'm telling you, if there was ever a dry meeting, I was in one. I'm telling you, somebody struck a match, the whole place would have caught fire. Next morning, a good preacher friend of mine came in and sat down beside me. He wasn't there the night before. He said, who preached last night? I said, nobody. Two men spoke, but nobody preached. It takes the grace of God to enable a man... To be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take God's word, expound on God's word, explain God's word, teach God's word. And the Spirit of God associates Himself with that and, and comes along with that. So it might have an impact in your heart, an impact in your life. Man asked another man, preacher asked this other preacher, he said, Does your church have a death ministry? And he says, Well. I believe sometimes the entire church needs a deaf ministry where I'm at because it seems like nobody listens, so what do I say? <laughs> so It takes the power of Christ, though. It takes the Spirit of God, the able man to preach the gospel, but I'm telling you, you need to have that same grace to hear and to understand and to feel. It takes hearing grace and listening grace. <laughs> It it takes God's grace for his church to operate. The church, apart from God's grace, is just nothing. We don't depend upon the things of men. We depend entirely and completely upon God. We depend upon an independent God, don't we? We're dependent. God's not dependent. There's the grace of worship. And so Paul said, grace be to you and peace from our from God our Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you. Preaching grace, singing grace, giving grace, worshiping grace, you see. And then there's a grace of service. Look at Hebrews 12, 28. Paul says, wherefore receiving a kingdom. I want you to know Paul says we're receiving a kingdom right now. You know, a lot of people don't understand that. They think there's a kingdom, but it's it's not here yet. It's coming down the road in the future. Well, that's not according to Paul. He says, receiving a kingdom, he says, let us have grace that we might serve God with reverence and godly fear. If we're going to serve the Lord, we've got to have grace to serve the Lord. He said, with reverence and godly fear. Now, one of the things I've noticed here of late in the last few years, getting more and more, is a casual approach to God. A casual approach to God. Did a funeral this past week. Walked in looking for the sanctuary. Looking for the chapel. I saw this large room. It had some round tables with white tablecloths on it and flowers sitting in the middle. And that was the chapel. I asked the man about it. He said, well, you know, we, we're taking more of a celebration of life approach to it. Getting away from the, the seriousness of the situation. Getting, getting away from, you know, he says, let us have grace. We might serve God with reverence and godly fear. You know what the next verse is? He said, for our God is a consuming Fire. That's what the next verse is. You know what that tells me? That tells me that his reverence is important. As I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, if I was going to go have a meeting with the mayor, the governor, or the president, <laughs> you think I'd show up with tennis shoes and casual attire? I'd try to look the best I could. I guarantee you i have my suit on. I'd come to God's house. I'm gonna to try to look the best I can, and that's a lot of work. Brother Jerry Patton's always telling me, though, how good I clean up. He's always, <laughs> he's always telling me that, and I always tell him, "Well, it's a struggle. It's a, it's a lot of work. Got to get up early on Sunday morning to get the job done." <laughs> I'm gonna to try to look the best I can look, whatever that is. I mean, God's house with God's people around the Word of God, I got to take it seriously. I got to. T- i got to show reverence to my Heavenly Father. He's the one who who knew me, loved me, saved me by His grace, sent His Son to die for me. I need to give Him the best i got. There's enduring grace. You know, the Apostle Paul, in writing 2 Corinthians 11, and then in 2 Corinthians 12, gives a very lengthy list of all the things that he endured in his travels, endured in his ministry, endured in his apostleship. And we come to chapter twelve. We find where he says he was called to third heaven slash paradise, and he heard unspeakable words, which are not lawful, man. To utter. That word, by the way, uh, uh, not lawful. The other literally means inexpressible. He heard words that was inexpressible. His, his, the revelations he saw, the experience he had was just inexpressible. <laughs> Unsearchable the words in God is a word in God's word. How unsearchable are his riches and his ways past finding out. He said, lest I be lifted up above measure and exalted above measure, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. The word buffet means to hit like a boxer. To buffet me. He says, three times I sought the Lord about this. Three times. In other words, he might take it away. But the Lord wouldn't do it. He just told him this. He says, my grace is sufficient. I want want the sufficiency of God's grace to be unto you. That's my prayer for you. My desire for you is that the grace of God be unto you. The grace of God to you. The sufficiency of God's grace. To help you through the trials and the tribulations of this world right here. That's why Hebrews 4.16 is such a wonderful verse. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. What kind of throne? The throne of grace. That has a wonderful ring to it, doesn't it? Let us come boldly. It is with confidence to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Grace unto you in your time of need. And you know that you've had days of need in times past. You know you're going to have days of needs in the future, aren't you? You've had sorrow in the past. You'll have sorrow in the future. You've had heartache in the past. You're going to have heartache in the future. But God's grace is sufficient. He says that my, my strength might be made perfect. In other words, Paul, I want you to see your weakness, but I want you to see the perfection of my strength. I want you to see how great I am, how powerful I am. And this messenger, Satan, will enable you to do that. It will cause you to rely on me, to cause you to trust in me, to cause you to depend upon me, you see. And so Paul said, Therefore, gladly will I take pleasure in my reproaches, in my tribulations, in my distresses, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For when I am weak, then am I strong. It's when you see yourself in your own weakness that you can see how important and how powerful God is. And you can have that experience when you realize and understand, I'm just nothing apart from God, but with God, like the hymn writer said, or like Paul said in Philippians, he said, I can do all things through Christ Jesus, which strengthened me. Grace unto you. You know the first time the word grace is used in the Bible? I, I know you want me to tell you. <laughs> Genesis 9 8 it talks about a man by the name of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we read about Noah in the New Testament. We find Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The population of the world in that day grieved God because they were so wicked and so evil, and it pleased God to send forth a flood to destroy this world. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God's going to bless Noah with enduring grace. Sufficient grace, because he's gonna bless Noah with a with a blueprint to build an ark. And when the flood comes, Noah and his family are gonna be delivered from this ungodly world by the water. You know, Peter says he's saved by water, that trips some people up. But it shouldn't. But what did water do for Noah? It drowned all the ungodly and wicked peoples what it did. And he was saved from them and delivered from them by the waters of the flood. The ark was a refuge and a sanctuary for him. It housed him and his family. And so God gave him enduring and sufficient grace in a time of this uh, uh, you know, judgment he sent upon the entire world. We read about Moses' experience in Exodus chapter 33. And you'll find that follows 32, which is a chapter where they made those idols, uh, you know, the, the golden calf, where Peter, uh, excuse me, uh, Aaron made the golden calf. And when Moses came and questioned him about it, he, he done what Adam did. He, Adam put the blame on the woman. The woman put the blame on the serpent. The serpent was left hanging. He didn't know where to put the blame to. <laughs> and so he puts the blame on the people. He said, you know how the people are? Oh, yes, I know how they are, Moses. And say I'm sure. He said, I just put it all in a fire and boom, out jumped the calf. <laughs> that's about as lame as I've ever heard. You know, that's the best he had. He just used the best he had. And so the following chapter, Moses is still, you know, it's it's the aftermath of all that. And Moses talking to God. He says, if I have found grace in thy sight. And the Lord says, you have found grace in my sight, Moses, and I'll give you my presence and give you rest. You have found grace in my sight. See, this is living grace I'm talking about now. I'm talking about grace that helps us through the trials of life, helps us uh, in all of our troubles. Over in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, verse 2, he says to the people, talking about the nation of Israel, he says that the people that were escaped of the sword, he says, they found grace in my sight there in the wilderness. What kind of grace did they find? They found wells of water. They found manna and they found quail that God miraculously supernaturally rained down upon them. Uh, they found rest, uh, my friends, uh, and leadership of that pillow of a clown the daytime, the pillow of a fire at night. And God protected them, and God gave them clothes that didn't wear out, and shoes that didn't wear out in 40 years. Brought them all the way through the wilderness to eventually across Jordan's River, enter into the land of Canaan. Why? Because they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The book of Acts is just filled with the grace that's needed to be able to serve the Lord. In Acts 4.32, you'll find where it says concerning the apostles, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. I love the two greats here, great power and great grace. I'm telling you, God's grace is always sufficient, and sometimes we need an extra measure of grace. Sometimes we need an extra a degree of grace. Sometimes we just need a greater application of grace than at other times. I, I needed an extra measure of grace when I, when I preached some funerals, like my mother's funeral, my father's funeral, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law's funeral. You know, I needed extra grace to do things like that. I needed some extra grace when I was 20 years of age and had to make a decision over 50-some years ago to have open-heart surgery for a hole in my heart that I was born with that the doctors recommended for me to have sewn up when heart surgery was just getting off the floor. But I prayed to God, and God gave me the grace, gave me the consent of mine, gave me a peace of mind to make the decision to go forth and have it done. And without it, I probably wouldn't be here with you this morning. That's great grace, brethren. And God can give you the peace of God that passeth all understanding. I'm not, I'm not hardly going to say anything about peace here this morning, but I can tell you without the grace there'd be no peace. Everything's in an order. you got grace so that you might have peace. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. It said, with well, great grace was upon them. They took great grace for those apostles to face the mobs and the crowds that they had to face in that day. And they had the face being put in prison, they had the face being beaten with many stripes. They had to have great grace to endure all that. So the apostle, all these churches, is writing to says, "And grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father." I say to you this morning, regardless of what you've gone through in times past and what you may have to go through in the future, the grace and peace of Almighty God will be sufficient for you. And that's my desire. That's my, my feelings for you. That's my prayer for you, is that grace will be with you and favor will be with you. That's what grace is. It's the favor of God. Whether we're talking about our salvation on Calvary, our salvation inwardly, or the grace that we have for living every single day we live upon the face of this earth, I love this expression, in Acts chapter 11, when Barnabas came to a place called Antioch. And he says, when he saw the grace of God. <laughs> How in the world can you see God's grace? I've seen it this morning. I've seen the grace of God this morning in your faces, in your countenance. I've seen the grace of God operating here this morning. I saw the grace of God in the singing of the hymns, uh, the spiritual hymns that lifted my heart and lifted my spirit. And I believe I've seen the Spirit of God operating, the grace of God operating here this morning in your face and and your acknowledgement of some of the things I've been trying to preach. Sometimes when people nod, I don't know if they're saying amen or about to go to sleep. I don't know which it is. I just assume it's amen. (laughs) When you saw the grace of God and then before he left there, he says, and they, him and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. I love the, the applications of God's grace for living here. But we'll never make it along the journey of life without that. Would you? No, you wouldn't. I know we often proclaim, we believe that we're saved by grace. Obviously, that's so true. But I don't want you to overlook the importance of God's Grace that we stand in need of on a daily basis here in this life to worship him, to serve him, to endure the afflictions and the trials and tribulations in this old world in which we live. I got to thinking about this just recently. It came on my mind as I was reading scriptures and I said, you know, peace, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. And upon further investigation, I find he said that to every church. That's because he felt like every church had to have that. Every church needed that. That was his desire for every church, whether it be the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, the church at Colossae, or the church at Thessalonica. He knew they all needed that. They couldn't serve God and worship God in an acceptable manner if they didn't have God's enabling grace to help them along life's pathway. And then he closed every single one of those epistles the same way. An expression of God's grace. Then we come to the end of the Bible. You know, when I'm writing something, you know, sometimes it's just hard to get started. Where do I start? Well, sometimes I'll try to figure out, well, how am I going to end it? What shall I say at the end? What shall I say? Well, John said it best. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.